COVID-19 thing. And uh, the, what I've been telling everybody is now that I have antibodies, I'm just going around licking public door handles. It's just, uh, <clears throat> it's been a lot of fun. And, uh, but uh, thank you for your prayers. It was rather mild, but we're glad to be through it. Uh, I'm just excited about getting back uh, to preaching this week. Uh, this is week number 49 in the Gospel of Mark. Before I start, I want to remind you guys, if you're listening on YouTube or you're here or whatever, maybe you're watching on YouTube later, if you haven't downloaded the Grace Life Sarasota app out of the uh, Apple Store or Google Play, the um, store, if you Google Grace Life, all one word, and then Sarasota, you'll see our app. L- download it. Uh, use it. Uh, you can get a lot of information from there. We get push notifications, all that kind of stuff, so make sure you do that. So we're week 49 in the Gospel of Mark. I've titled this sermon, Kingdom Success. So there are some things in here that might sound like a repeat, but it's not my fault. It's Jesus' fault. It's the disciples' fault, but there is some interesting stuff in here. So <clears throat> a couple questions for you. If you were actually in charge of grace life, what would you change about our church to, for lack of a better term, make it more successful? To have it move up in the ranks, right, of, of the church rankings. And how would you measure that success? What would you say, well, yes, at this point, if Grace Life does this, then we are successful. If we don't do this, then we're not as successful as we should. Well, I think, personally, I think there are two types of answers to this question. There's the spiritual forced sort of, you know, humble answer, you know, and that one says, well, as long as we're preaching the gospel and serving our community sacrificially, then we're a successful church. That's the one that, you know, the Pharisee side of us likes to say. But then there's the one that we think in the back of our mind, and frankly, the answer that most churches in America are set up and designed to be as far as success a successful marketing campaign. It's a church that is striving to be attractive to a particular demographic, key growth demographics, if you will. It's a church that has nice facilities. It has financial endowments. Those really are what a successful church looks like from the earthly American point of view. But according to today's passage, we will learn that the answer to a successful church is uncomfortable, pervasive, overwhelming humility and sacrifice. That's what a church should look like. So let's read our passage today, starting in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, Well, what do you want me to do? Of course, he already knew, but he wanted them to say it. And they said to him, get this, the audacity. This is on the heels of him predicting his death and resurrection. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. I mean, these guys, right? And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those that it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other disciples, right, they began to be angry at James and John. I would be too. What are you asking for, guys? And Jesus called to them, all of them, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So, as we do, we divide each section, uh, each uh, passage in three sections. The first is the history. What about man? What did he do? I've entitled this section, Do Us a Favor. Because that's really what James and John are asking, the brothers. And this is a repeated theme, right? This is not the first time the disciples have sought to be first or second in the kingdom behind Jesus. They can't seem to give up striving to be first. And it will happen again later that we'll find out at the Last Supper. They'll ask again. So it's not that they're stupid people. There's got to be something deeper at work here, maybe that we're misunderstanding. They're not just ignorant, right? And on the heels of this third time that Jesus has said, look, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be condemned for a crime I didn't commit. Right after this prediction, the third time in a very short window, they're appealing to him to sit at his right and left hand in glory. See, the reason this is historically an understandable request is because ancient kings would commonly give these positions to their closest allies. We learned about this, as a matter of fact, if you remember during our series on the life of Joseph, Pharaoh gave Joseph this very position. He was number one in charge at his right hand. So this was a, a common thing that kings would do. He became Pharaoh's number one and second in command. And and their thought is, and they knew that story about Joseph, their thought is, hey, Jesus, can we be Joseph? So you see, it's not like a totally ridiculous request. It's semi-reasonable. And so it's important for us that we don't be so harsh. See, apostles, they have this natural human instinct that Jesus still cannot penetrate. This ambition to sit on the left and right hand of Jesus in the kingdom reveals how badly, frankly, they need Jesus, right? And it seems on the surface to be a very tone-deaf request. How many of you would be comfortable if you were James and John? Yeah, Jesus, I heard about the dying and all that stuff, but we got a favor to ask. Would you be comfortable doing that? And before we get too harsh, we should understand that this idea isn't just out of left field. I explained to you the culture. It may seem outlandish, but it's really not. It's a a rational request. They were believers, so it's not that they're totally blind to spiritual truth. It's not that they are just wicked men. They know they're connected to Messiah. They've seen the power of Jesus, right? They've seen it in the miracles. They've seen it in the teaching. They've seen him when he's interacted with Pharisees and Sadducees. They know he's special, and they know that they are connected to him. Now, these were common people. They, some of them were rather successful, maybe on a worldly perspective, but they weren't of the religious elite. They were common people, and now they see a chance to join the upper crust of society because of their connection to Messiah. And so culture and history, combined with a natural human pride for self-elevation and ambition, 
I got news for you. We would all be thinking the same thing in their setting. And what we see here that happens because of this is we see the first church conflict. You know, the other disciples are quite upset with James and John for asking Jesus about this topic again. Why? It's not because, you know, you guys should never ask that. My personal opinion from what I've studied, I think they were not appalled, but more likely because they got beaten to the punch. (laughs) Wait a minute. You're just going to leave us all behind, James and John? We don't even get a chance to run for it. You're going to run to Jesus on your own and ask for this favor before anybody else does? You brothers, you get to be first? What about us? That's not fair. Entitlement begins to creep in. Honestly, we would probably feel the same way. James and John running roughshod over their fellow apostles, trying to get a position of special connection with Messiah. There's probably a little jealousy already, right? Because if you remember, James and John, along with Peter, are already part of what is very clearly developing into this special inner, inner circle of these three. Remember, these two, along with Peter, were the ones that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? And the rest of them were left at the bottom of the hill, fending for themselves as they were being accosted by the Pharisees. Remember, and the story was after transfiguration, Jesus came down to rescue them. But while Peter, James, and John are having this incredible moment, seeing Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and all this incredible sight, the other ten are down there getting blasted publicly. So they already feel probably a little bit insecure about their standing with Jesus when it comes to comparing with Peter, James, and John, and now this. So you can see how this is developing a little bit of conflict, right? So that's the history of this passage. I'm going to talk about the spiritual. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? Jesus says, you know what? You're not ready. Let me explain what my cup and my baptism means when Jesus says, can you drink my cup? Be in my baptism? In chapter 9, Jesus used this image of a helpless baby. Do you remember that? To show the folly of wanting to be first in the kingdom. He says, no, no, you can't be first. You've got to be like this baby, helpless. Well, this time what Jesus does is he uses his personal example of service and humility to teach them about the last and the first. He says, you know what? You don't have any idea what you're asking for. Can you drink my cup? Can you take my baptism? Understand, when he says baptism, I don't want you to think John the Baptist. I don't want you to think in the name, you know, we baptize you in the name of the Father. That's not the type of baptism Jesus is talking about here. See, the word baptism is actually a homonym. You know what a homonym is? Homonym, I can't even say it. Homonym is, it's a word with more than one meaning. Like, you know, bark. A dog might bark, you have bark on a tree. A crane, you know, a big crane, but then you got the bird, a bird is a crane. And fall, it's a season and also an action, like when you trip. So baptism is actually a homonym with two different meanings. And the word here that Jesus uses is baptisma. And it means, yes, it means dipped, and that's one of the meanings, but this meaning means calamities, affliction, with which one is quite overwhelmed. He's saying, are you ready to be overwhelmed with the affliction and calamity that I'm about to face? And what about the cup? See, drinking a cup was another well-known Semitic idiom about suffering, judgment, persecution. It's a very dark picture. Matter of fact, this usage of the cup shows up several times in the Old Testament, in Psalms and in Isaiah. Here's one example in Psalm 75.8. For 
in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Judgment. Cup. Judgment. If you remember later on, we'll learn about this, right before he's getting ready to be arrested, Jesus is praying in the garden, and he says, if it's your will, Father, please let this cup be taken from me. It wasn't his, like, cup of wine. It was this cup of judgment. That, too, is an Old Testament reference in Isaiah about the cup. So Jesus says, you know what, you guys, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you all in with my cup and my baptism? See, you heard me predict my death, but I don't think you really understand how bad it's going to be. You want to be first? Are you ready to go through what I'm getting ready to go through? See, his question in the Greek, the original language, is actually constructed as a rhetorical question. It does not really expect an answer. Are you really ready to do this? The obvious answer is, well, no. They expect an answer in the negative. Here's the word. Here's the Greek word that he uses for his answer. It's dunamai. Can you handle my cup? Can you endure my baptism? Is this really what you think you're ready for? This is used, get this, this can you handle, can you endure? It is used 150 times in the New Testament. You think that might be a word we should pay attention to? It's used as an interrogative 150 times as a question. And it's always rhetorical. That always expects a negative answer. Can you do this? Matter of fact, give me, let me give you an example of another time Jesus used it. Matthew 6. In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The word can is dunamai. Can you really, by doing anything, add anything to your life? The answer, of course, is no. Anxiousness won't add anything to your life. And amazingly, though, so you understand the tone and, the, and what these words mean. It's, it's not like, oh, you're going to drink from my cup and be baptized with me. It's no. You're ready to go through all this stuff, really? Expecting a negative answer. And, of course, the answer, just like Peter's later on that we'll learn, absolutely, Jesus, we can drink your cup. We can endure your baptism. We can do anything we need to to be first and second in heaven. We're all in. And then Jesus says, oh, really? And he gives them a personal example. He begins to teach by example about a kingdom of service and not power. And he says, look at this humility. This is Jesus, the son of God. He's actually is God, the creator of the universe. Look at this example. He says, the left and right are not mine to give. Whoa. Jesus says, you're asking the wrong person. Isn't that wild? And he confronts their core motivation, something that has been observed from every other earthly kingdom, and that is this idea of royalty and ruler granting special places to their closest people. And here's what he says. Those rulers that you admire, that you think give things to their friends, those rulers that seek to gain power over you, that take authority for themselves and their people they're closest to, I'm not like those other kingdoms or rulers. My kingdom is not about being powerful. My kingdom is not about being first. My kingdom is about being last. 
I haven't come to take power and give it to you, my friends. I've come to give my life so that you can escape judgment that you very much deserve. That power you seek, it's not even mine to give. I'm here to die. I'm here to drink a cup of judgment and endure the calamity of baptism in suffering. I'm going to be overwhelmed and baptized in suffering. And why am I doing that? I'm doing it for your benefit and for all that the Father has given to me that will come. You really want to be first? Follow my example and be last. Be a servant to all. Don't look for power like they do. And then he closes it off with this idea about their cup and their baptism. So I'm going to start off with a verse from Paul. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 10 of Philippians, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the mindset I want you to get into this as I get ready to teach this. And he says... Oh, yeah, later, you are going to drink the cup. And you are going to be consumed by the baptism. It did come at first, remember? And they all denied Jesus. They couldn't handle it. Yes, we're all in. But just as soon as it got a little bit tough, they scattered. They would flee in fear of this cup and baptism. And despite their confidence at the time, these men later on, not too long from now, would do everything they could to avoid the cup and baptism of Jesus prior to the cross. Jesus tells them, you will drink my cup, you will be submerged in my baptism, it's coming. I've tried, been trying to warn you. Now later after Pentecost, this prophecy would be fulfilled in both James and John and many other disciples in incredible ways. Did you know James is the first disciple to die for the gospel? He would give his life. He would drink the cup and the baptism, wouldn't he? Now John, the elder, outlives them all, but he in the end suffers persecution, exile, and execution as well. So yes, Jesus' prophecy of their cup and baptism did come, but it was much later. And Paul explains this cup prophecy, right, and how it relates to all of us in this beautiful manner, right here. We go through it, why? So we can enjoy the benefits of the resurrection. And in the end, through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to endure the cup and baptism, but it was not on their own. So let's look at the third application of this passage, the personal. I want to talk about a successful church. So for those of you that were able to follow this week, this was my Sunday sermon preview. Churches speak often about pursuing kingdom success, But most of our church resources and effort are spent pursuing earthly success. I want to talk about this thing called prestige. Because this is really what they were looking for. How should we react to these guys? Are they fools? That's the wrong question. We should not be asking, how could they do this? No, no. Here's the question you really should be asking. You know, if James and John missed it, walking with Jesus every day, is it possible that I'm missing a lot about myself and my church? These guys knew Jesus. I would submit to you, they know Jesus way better than we do, and they still didn't get it. Is it possible that we don't either? 
I mean, why do you think these men wanted to be on the right and left hand of Jesus? It was prestige. And I think, in many respects, I don't think any of you here or on watching would deny this. I think we all desire that same thing in one form or another, right? Even without even knowing it, prestige. But we know we can't sit on the right and left hand of Jesus. That would be the ultimate prestige. So what we do is we look for substitutes, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously. And I think today's churches struggle with the allure of spiritual prestige as well. Think about it. Do we have celebrity churches in America? Do we have celebrity pastors? Do we have celebrity musicians? Do we have celebrity authors? There's lots of prestige seeking in the kingdom, isn't there? And many find it. They make a lot of money off of it. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying there's a lot of prestige seeking. But it's not just on that big national level, right? That's easy to point out. I think the allure of church prestige manifests itself on the local kingdom level as well. What would you want for Grace Life on a local level? Is there a list of goals and dreams and expectations you have for your church if you're going to keep coming? Do we desire a full house on Easter Sunday? Wouldn't it be great? All the holidays, it's packed out. Well, let's be real. I think we all would love, to a certain degree, standing room only every Sunday. What would you like, number one in the kingdom, at least in the Sarasota branch, to look like? Maybe your vision of prestige is the opposite. Maybe you would like your church to say small, to give you that little individual attention and prestige you crave, sort of like a big fish in a small pond kind of thing. That's also prestige. See, none of that really sounds like humble service or sacrifice, does it? I'm going to tell you this, and this is, this is me being vulnerable with you. <clears throat> Confession time. As your pastor, I struggle with this constantly, almost daily, maybe four times daily. My flesh would love for Grace Life to have thousands of attenders. I'd love to have more influence in our city. I'd love a big budget that I have to worry about balancing. Many of you know we need a new church home very soon. This is hard. People relegated to watching from home or a limited crowd at nightlife while the band is streaming from McCurdy's. It's difficult. The pandemic's been hard on our church in that respect. We were ready for it when it came financially. We were good. We were ready but it's dragging on and it's having its impact, right? We need a new home. How sick is it that sometimes in my... Boy, this is hard to confess, but sometimes I find my heart saying, maybe there's a church that's struggling and dying, we can grab their building. How sick is that? I mean, I think that way. I wonder what their attendance is. I wonder if they're making budget. And I stop... What are you doing, Joe? You want to be first. 
I feel so guilty about it, right, when it happens. It's embarrassing for me. And it's heartbreaking when my sick mind wanders there, especially as your pastor at Grace Life. How's that for vulnerability? Is that good enough for you? Why did I just admit all that? That might hurt the way some of you see me, right? Well, think about that vulnerability in this way, and I don't mean this in the wrong way. Think of it as a humble service to you, for you to understand that I'm really struggling with being last in the kingdom. I really don't want to be last. I at least want to be middle of the pack. I'd rather be first or second in this Sarasota branch of the kingdom. I don't want to be last. What does that mean for my prestige, my book sales, my YouTube subscribers? See, humble service. I want to talk about this. See, it's hard to spot these tendencies sometimes, right? Our tendency to want to try to be first without actually saying it. Because desiring some sort of prestige is part of our human nature. It just is. At work, at home, in our circle of friends, whatever it is, we all kind of want prestige. But we must understand the cross and the sacrifice and example of Jesus to begin to really understand what it means about how the church must be a servant and a slave to all. What did Jesus say in verse 45? For even the Son of Man came not to, ser- to be served. That's what you think about what a king, right? He has servants. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. Look what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. By the way, in case you don't know, Philippians was the first book we went through as a church. It's where most of our core values come from, being mobile, organic, and biblical and generous. Look what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be attained or grasped. He didn't have to earn it, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found. Think about this. He is God, doesn't have to attain God, but he empties himself, being in the form of a servant, being born like a man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does even death on a cross mean? The worst possible death you could suffer in the first century. Not a quick death. Not a painless death, a slow, agonizing, embarrassing death that not only takes your life, but strips you of all of what? Prestige. You're killed like a criminal. So we know that kingdom success is founded on sacrifice and service. But what level? I mean, actually, church, how far are we supposed to take this concept if we're honest, the level that we're currently comfortable with probably, is it safe to say, it probably doesn't line up with the example of Jesus? What he displayed, what he expected from his disciples. Would you agree with that? 
the level of sacrifice and service we're comfortable with, we've learned to manage it, to coordinate it off, to make sure it doesn't go too far. But luckily, Paul gives us another great example in Philippians, a simple, pithy description of what should be our aspiration, and it is not prestige. Here's what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Oh, wow. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, great, Pastor Joe. You're better than me. That's not what I meant, okay? It's not what I meant to say. Consider others better than yourselves. Look out for their own interests. What does that look like? Now what? Good sermon, Joe, but how can we make sure we're on the right path? I want to know if on Monday I'm actually learning. And how do we know if we're succeeding corporately as a church? How do I know if I'm succeeding individually? I'm going to give you some examples of what being last looks like. The first one is we have to be servants. We must relentlessly, selflessly look to meet the needs of each other in our church family, our brothers and sisters. See, this, though, for us to do that, it requires trust that we are actually all in on it. So nobody's overburdened, right? Like maybe half of us are looking to look out for others and we think of them as better than ourselves, but the other half aren't really doing. What happens? Those first half get burned out. Overburdened. See, for us to really be last, we all have to be committed to this. Others are better than us, and we are going to look for their interests. So that's the first thing. We must all make a commitment to say, I'm going to consider my brothers and sisters at church better than myself, and I'm going to look out for their interests. But then there's another thing we have to be. We have to be advocates. We have to make sure that our desire to grow as a church does not get in the way of us standing in the gap for people who are weak and helpless, people who just for the first time maybe in their lives need someone on their side. They need some help. They need somebody to stick up for them, stand up for them, come alongside of them and say, I see what's going on here. Let me help you with this. We have to be servants. We have to be habitual advocates. And then here's a part we have to be. We have to be evangelists. And that's the last one, but it's critical. And I don't want you to think about, you know, tent revival evangelists. That's not what I'm talking about. What it means is we have to have the courage to, in humility, take an unfiltered gospel to the perishing. I love what Paul says in Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So let me explain to you why this works against this seeking of prestige. Some Christians are ashamed of the pure, true, unfiltered, unadulterated gospel because it's a hard message against human nature. And so what happens is many churches... Look for ways to soften it, culturalize it, 
change it just a little bit so it markets a little bit better. Why? Because shame of an unfiltered gospel is the antithesis of what? Prestige. See, sometimes preaching the unfiltered gospel will make you lose worldly prestige. But what we must do is we must be willing and ready and able to, in humility, giving up our prestige and what people think about us, in humility, not arrogantly, not like hellfire and brimstone, damnation and judgment, we must be humbly preaching the full gospel. A gospel that Paul says that the perishing world deems foolish. Paul says that. He says, we are saved by the gospel, which the world that is dying says is kind of silly. Oh, really? A guy in the first century who died and rose again? It's foolishness. You believe that? Boy, you're a little baby, aren't you? A little kid? Yeah, I am. Because that's how we get to the kingdom. See, these are the qualities Servants, advocates, evangelists, these are the qualities that kingdom-minded people must display. And it only happens when we are free from the body-riddling cancer of desiring prestige. We will know that we are a successful church and successful followers of Christ when we are described as servants, advocates, evangelists. This is how grace life, individually and corporately, will know it is striving to be last instead of first. If God provides us a new home, it's nice, or if it's not nice, we don't know what it's going to look like. If that is our goal, to get a place so we can move up in the ranks, that's not being last. We have to make sure that above all, we are servants, advocates, and evangelists. The question is, and I, I don't know, I'm just being real with you, I have to think about it. Because there's a lot going on. We're making some very big decisions as a leadership team. I don't know if you know that or not. Please pray for us. The question really is, are we really truly okay with being last? Are we? I mean, I'd like to say I am. I'm not so sure. It's scary, isn't it? I don't know if I'm ready for the cup and the baptism. But when it comes, I hope Jesus and His Spirit give me the strength to endure it. Heavenly Dad... This is really hard for us. Not just theoretically as Christians. Personally, as a church, Grace Life Sarasota, Pastor Joe, all of us that are part of this church family, this is really hard for us right now. Because from the world's perspective, we're not where we want to be. In some ways, we're kind of limping along as a church because of the circumstances of the pandemic and facilities and all those things. 
I know sometimes, me personally, I'm losing sleep over it at night thinking about what does failure look like? Uh, is this church, you know, is this, and I get so caught up in that. I know that all of us do in some way, maybe not necessarily the way in the areas that I do, but we think about it all the time. Am I really okay with being last? God, I'm just going to ask you, I'm just going to confess to you, we're not ready to drink the cup and be consumed with the baptism. We're going to ask you, God, please make us okay with being last. Because we just want to make sure that how we operate as a church and as children of God, that we're making you smile. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, it was so good to be back preaching this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that look into Mark chapter 10. We'll be back here next week, ready to roll again. We love you. Thank you. And look, some of you out there are still struggling. If you need anything from us, let us know.